Hello, and welcome to the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Cummings, founder and designer of the jewellery brand Cleopatra's Bling. Each episode, we take you to meet someone whose work, study, creation, or simply life ethos inspires the world of our collections. We invite you to come along on this journey as we meet the makers and thinkers whose contributions have shaped the handmade jewellery we create and the lives we live while wearing it. This week, I'm speaking with Anna, otherwise known as the Urban Nana. Anna is a former primary school teacher with a horticultural background. Nowadays, rather than a stuffy building, the great outdoors is her classroom. Anna teaches traditional ways of crafting, preserving and cooking, all the while living in the precarious rental market of suburban Australia. The biggest thing I've noticed overall in my move to a permaculture life is it allows me to broaden my scope. It takes me away from being self-centred and it gives me a lens through which to view the world. It sort of helps me see injustice and imbalance in the status quo and it empowers me to develop those tools and tricks that are going to help me deal with that and to make a difference in the world. She demonstrates ways of living a zero-waste lifestyle using the principles of permaculture that she shares with her students and followers. So I'm really happy that you're here with us. Thanks for your time. For all those listening, we are speaking with the Urban Nana. Can you explain a little bit how you came up with that name before we get into the questions? So my name is Anna. And I have always kind of loved doing traditional things like sewing and cooking and gardening, mending, sort of real nana skills. I moved up to the country for three years at one stage of my life and I sort of really got stuck into it. And then people started coming to me and asking me for questions like, you know, how do I fix this or what do I do when my tomatoes aren't bearing fruit? So I sort of became this person that kind of acted like that traditional nana who you would go to for advice on stuff that you didn't want to just look up on the internet, but you wanted a real source of information that you trusted. In Turkey, like, or a lot of Mediterranean countries, you have, you know, the grandmas of the villages who are so knowledgeable and looked up to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you ever needed to know how to make pasta, you'd just go and sit and have a chat and then you'd come away knowing everything. And with a full belly. <laughs> yep. So how would you describe foraging for our listeners who have never heard of it? To forage is to, uh, technically it is to go from place to place searching for things that you can eat or use. Throughout history, it's the gather part of that phrase, hunter-gatherers. It's been a part of human history since forever, really, because the word traces right back to Old Norse word of fodder, which means fodder or food for livestock. So... The concept of foraging has been evident in uh, anthropological records going back as far as two million years, even long after humans started doing subsistence farming and modern agriculture in their lifestyles, foraging was still going on because, you know, to supplement your food, not just things that you've put effort into, but something that nature has been doing quietly on its own and you're able to reap a small sort of portion of yield from that, so to speak. That's so wonderful. So do you feel like you're sort of reviving cultural traditions in your foraging practice that we've sort of lost connection to? Definitely. And that's sort of the thing that I'm really seeking to do. I think the biggest cultural tradition I'm keen to revive is that of really deep connection to country, to community, 
and to our role and our place in all of that. So the first thing I urge any would-be forager to do is to learn about the country around them, learn who the traditional custodians of the land are, learn about their traditions and how they've connected to country through history, you know, learn what species and plants and animals are native and which ones are introduced and whether they're vulnerable or not. So find out what ecological challenges the country around you is facing. And it's only when you've got that deep understanding of the ecosystem around you that you can make informed decisions about foraging in that place. Anyone can forage, but to be a forager is to first and foremost respect the land before there's any exchange. That connection to country, that's something I'm really keen to help people find out more about. And then there's all the little stuff as well for me, like cultural traditions around basket making and pottery from renewable resources like clay and grasses or or using wild yeasts and stuff in uh, fermenting food and how to make dyes and inks out of plants and rocks. That's all sort of um, rebranded as bushcraft skills these days. But to me, they're a really primal, connective cultural tradition that um, it would be so sad if it was lost. So I'm <laughs> just keen that yeah. you know, everyone can get it's into it. All encompassing as well. It's not just about food. And I think probably that's what foraging is associated with but I think it's a lot of different aspects of life that we can forage in order to create those things at home or yeah and it's interesting that with the modern iteration of foraging you're right that's what most people initially think is oh it's about going and getting free food to me that's just another arm of consumerism (laughs) and I agree with you that's not what foraging is about so that's why I'm sort of like yeah I really drum at home uh, right at the beginning that it's like you're a very small cog in this whole landscape of the world you're not just out there to get what you can you have a small place in this and you need to respect that otherwise it's not going to work out for you (laughs) so (laughs) yeah because too much foraging could also potentially exhaust whatever it is that you're foraging as well so that has happened around the world there's a couple of species I mean in America Canada and the UK there's really stringent laws about um, foraging their wild garlic and, you know, you have to have a licence wow. and you're only allowed to forage 50 bulbs in, a t- in an entire year, um, otherwise you get massive fines and stuff like that, which is really good. What are your favourite foods to forage in an urban setting? Oh, um, I would say fruits is my first up, so particularly yeah. introduced species, like, you know, plums, apples, elderberries, olives, those sorts of things. Not only is it actually illegal to forage uh, native foods without appropriate licences, there's just so much of the European stuff around and it fruits in such such abundance that you're not going to cause too much trouble by going and taking a basket worth to make some jam Yeah, if there's 10 trees around kind of thing. So, yeah, fruits like plums are one of my big ones, you know, make jam or fruit leather and I infuse booze with it and um, make pies <laughs> and chutneys and just everything like that. Second would be leafy green weeds. Most gardens in Australia, most pathways, most parks, you could walk around there and if you have a weed forager's handbook, there is one book out there called that and it's a brilliant resource, you could go oh, out yeah. and pick 10 different types of leafy greens within a one kilometre radius. And it'd be more than enough to make pies, pestos, salads, put them into soups and stuff like that. So, you know, dandelions, oxalis, fat hen, wild brassica, which is basically like a 
throwback or it's the root of all cabbage family stuff you know you use it like kale or cabbage leaves so yeah greens is a big one you get loads of nutritional value from greens and they just flourish in disturbed soil so they love empty house blocks and you know that kind of thing there's also flowers as well so there's lots of different edible flowers around many of them people just use for prettiness but there are others like hawthorn Hawthorn and roses, they're both in the same family. Roses add beautiful flavour. You think of rose syrup in Turkish delight, that kind of thing. But hawthorn Mm. actually has medicinal properties, so it can lower your blood pressure. They're those sort of bushes you'll find along any country drive in southeast Victoria. Around autumn time, you'll see all these spiky bushes just covered in red berries. And they're generally, most of the time, hawthorn. Are they similar to rose hip? Like, do they look similar? Uh, They look a little bit more like a tiny apple. (laughs) Right. Okay. I think I can picture it. Yeah. But rose hips are also edible and they've got a huge vitamin C content. So they're a brilliant food for winter as well. Great for your skin as well. Yes. The oils out of them are wonderful too. Wild violet, cherry blossoms, gorse. You can all make beautiful flavoured sugars or infused syrups that you use on cakes or in cocktails and stuff like that. So they're a brilliant one. And then, of course, there's mushrooms. So I've become more knowledgeable about mushrooms every year. I learn about one species really well about every 12 months. So slowly it's built up and I've got this sort of confident repository of mushroom knowledge now that on every walk that I head out in autumn, I can kind of look at adding a couple of things to the dehydrator and then have a pantry full of them to use for pizzas or risottos and to add to stock Mm. and beef bourguignon and things like that. Delicious. We did that a lot this year because we live in North Warrandyte, so there's a lot of sort of pine tree areas around and I found so many pine mushrooms. Yeah, the saffron milk caps. Yeah. Yeah. And they're a good one to start with. There's not many options for stuffing it up (laughs) with them. No, I think that's why I felt confident because I sort of started as well, like learning more about it, so... I was like, I can definitely identify this and not kill anyone. Yeah, but look, mushrooms, I would sort of say, is uh, entry level. You need to know a lot more about species and edibility because the the risks are pretty high with them if you get it wrong. And so I guess with your foraging practice, I've noticed that you're quite into permaculture and you obviously grow a lot at home. I've seen on your social media. Do you mind telling us a little bit about the principles of permaculture? So... To begin with, the root of permaculture, which is sort of an amalgamation word of permanent culture and permanent agriculture, it sits on three foundational ethics and they basically boil down to earth care, people care and fair share, which is pretty much what I grew up believing. And from those three ethics stem 12 guiding principles which are really useful to give direction uh, to the life that you live. They cover all sorts of aspects of living. You you use them as a springboard to make change in your life. And they cover obvious things like, you know, number six is produce no waste, which is pretty self-explanatory. But there's also things like applying self-regulation and accepting feedback and integrating rather than segregating. So, for instance, number 11, which is use edges and value the marginal, it's a great way of thinking about foraging because in foraging you're using physical edges like roadsides and cracks in the pavers in the garden, but you're also using the conceptual edges, you know, the edges around food production and around the commercial systems of supermarkets and that sort of stuff. 
and you're looking for marginal species and marginal spaces and you yourself are being a marginal being because you're not ascribing complete value to the commercial food system. So it's a really Um, rich kind of thing when you dig into it, how those principles can apply to your life. And I use it retroactively in a way. (laughs) I'll I'll do something that I have a feeling is the right thing to do by the earth, by other people and by fair share kind of stuff. And then I'll go, right, which principles was I? Was Oh, okay, I was doing, yeah, I was producing no waste and I was also accepting feedback because I wasn't, you know, I was applying self-regulation. I didn't buy the thing that was in false, horrible packaging. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it and to kind of structure your life and it helps you work out which areas maybe you need to work on a little bit more if you want to be sort of a more sustainable person. How has it affected your habits in your day-to-day life, applying these principles of permaculture? It's helped me become more mindful um, and to Uh make the decisions around actions that I perform as every part of my day. Yeah, it applies to every section of my life, but, but I'm finding that, you know, as I get good at one part of being a permaculture liver, <laughs> I then sort of like, right, that's under my belt. I'll go on and do the next thing. What can I do better now? How can I expand on that? The biggest thing I've noticed overall in my move to a permaculture life is it allows me to broaden my scope. It takes me away from being self-centred and it gives me a lens through which to view the world sort of helps me see injustice and imbalance in the status quo and it empowers me to develop those tools and tricks that are going to help me deal with that and to make a difference in the world. It's like a sense of home coming back and knowing that there is always going to be these guiding principles that I can go back to if I'm feeling a bit lost. I can go back to them and say, right, if I do something that's in line with these principles, I'll be doing a good thing for community and for the earth but I'll also be feeling better that's really beautiful yeah (laughs) can you tell us some of your interesting observations that you've seen take place in nature since you started foraging maybe things you weren't aware of prior to your foraging career it's interesting because I I, my whole life I've been a fairly uh noticey kind of person I've got Asperger's and it uh Mm. it means that I'm sort of hyper aware of all the little things that go on around my life sometimes. Maybe that's why you're so good at this. Yeah, well, I wonder because it's um, also the thing is if I decide to learn about something, I'm going to learn about it. (laughs) You know, I'm going to learn it right down to the depth. That's great. (laughs) But I think having the knowledge behind me of different books and research and expertise that I've sort of sought out, I guess it's been more physiological stuff, so by um, botanical physiology so things like mushrooms grow out of eggs Mm. there's certain types of mushrooms uh like you know your typical fairy toadstools the red ones with the white spots they actually emerge out of the ground in this soft white egg and then as they break out of the egg as they start to grow larger bits of the egg stay on top of their caps and that's actually what forms those white spots really yeah which i just thought that's so cool this last year I noticed that on re- in really, really wet weather, those bits of egg, the warts that are there, they actually wash off because they become, uh, they become damp again and, and get washed off so you're left with just red mushrooms, which I thought was so cool. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, thought it was, I honestly thought it was a formation 
of the yes, mushroom, that, like that grew of out of it. Yeah, the fungus. Yeah, yeah. No, I I had known about it for a couple of years, but it was only seen after the really wet weather this year. We did have a really wet winter, so I think mushrooms went pretty um, gangbusters. They didn't did. They <laughs> sure did. Yeah, so it's stuff like that, you know, physiological stuff, and then genetics. There was a really cool elderberry bush I found that had obviously some kind of genetic mutation in some part of the plant because half of it, coming from the same rootstock, half of it had black berries and the other half were free of any pigment. They were like albino or leukistic elderberries and, you know, used in the same way and all the rest of it. But it was just this mutation. So I think that kind of stuff's fascinating. It is, and it's sort of things you wouldn't hear about unless you got out there and saw it or unless you you know watched a million David Attenborough yeah documentaries you wouldn't really notice that that was an egg when you say egg do you actually mean an an eggshell like we know it it's not an eggshell it's a soft sort of um it's called a sack but you know when you have mushrooms and they have mm-hmm. you know, when you buy them, that sort of shock. husky thing that's a that's yeah. a partial veil that lives underneath it and that protects the gills um, while the mushroom is growing big and strong and then when it's ready to shed its spores, that veil drops down. But that kind of wow. substance, it's like a soft, almost spongy feeling to it. That's the same mm. material that the, the egg sac or the volvul sac is made out of. So you can imagine it breaking quite easily. And, yeah, that, those are the little bits that are left behind on the top. That's incredible. <laughs> so what is your favourite season to forage in if you have one? I do love autumn. Um, mm. There's just something about going out and finding fruit trees literally weighed down with the abundance of big red, red rich apples or pears and quince and all those sorts of things, you know, those long keeping fruits that preserve really well and they keep really well. So, you know, you pick a small basket here and a small basket there and all of a sudden you've got over a couple of weeks, a dining table that's groaning with <laughs> with produce. Yeah. yeah, I think there's something about the winding down of the hot summer season. You can actually see how that energy has been caught and stored in those fruits and then knowing that you're going to take some of that home and use it to then nourish your body so you can grow. I think it's just such a beautiful connection to the seasons all in one fruit. I just think it's beautiful. Yeah, it's really that sort of time when you start to think about pulling out your jumpers and like more inside time and nurturing. Yeah, and to think that you're then going to be nourishing your body with these fruits that were quite literally grown by the energy of the sun. It makes you feel like you're warm from the inside because you've got the sun's energy inside you as well, which I think is lovely. Yeah, it's so lovely. What would you forage in summer then? In Australia, summer is full of fruit, so the, it's, mm-hmm. it's plum time for me. <laughs> so plums, I love plums. Uh, yeah, probably the main thing that I really focus on if I'm talking about wild urban spaces because they're spread so easily by birds that mm. almost every park you go to or nature strips and things like that, there'll be a plum tree and they can grow from a seed to a fruit-bearing tree in two years, you know. That's exceptionally quick, isn't it? Yes, yeah. I mean, that's why they do so well and that's why, you know, if you're ever going on country drives or whatever, Tasmania, South Australia, Southeast Victoria, anytime during late spring and early summer, if you see a tree with either dark purple or sort of mid-green coloured leaves on the roadside and it's got small baubles of yellow, green or red fruit on it, there's probably 95% chance it's a plum. 
<laughs> yeah. And, yeah. I, yeah, I knew they grew well in Victoria, but um, I'm not surprised that they grow like all over Australia, right? Yeah. I mean, I think there's uh, different species, obviously, that'll do well in different areas, but particularly this southeast corner of Australia, we've got a lot of those, you know, you call them cherry plums or chums, mm. some people call them little ones. Yeah, I know they, they make, ex- they're quite punchy and they make really good jam. Yes, they do indeed because, you know, they're, because they're a bit sour, uh, they've often got quite high pectin levels, which makes, makes the jam set better as well. But yeah, I've been playing around with unripe cherry plums recently, lacto-fermenting them with a bit of garlic and pepper and bay leaves and they actually end up turning out a bit like green olives. So you just pick them when they're still yeah. not quite ripe? That's then, right. Was that your invention or was that something you heard um, about? There's loads of different fermenting things around the world. I know that in Japan they do a lot of things with plums and cherry blossom and plum blossom as well. They've got a long-standing history of usage of the prunus species and they do some things with fermented plums but they're generally a little bit riper so I just thought oh well Mm. give it a shot there's so many around (laughs) and it's worked out really well. And what about figs are you into figs and I've heard also that you need a male and female is that? I think the majority of fig trees are self-fertile I know that there is one particular species that will only be fertilized if a very particular wasp which is tiny enters the fig fruit and fertilizes it. Yeah. So niche. I love it. Is that one of the, like one of our common wasps or is it sort of a more? No, it's one that's actually evolved in conjunction with these figs. So it's uh, one particular species and that fig needs that species and that species needs that fig. So it's a beautiful little system that it's got going. But it, it is what makes figs a bit of a contentious topic among the vegan community because they're saying if you eat those figs, you technically are eating insects so that's a really interesting thing but I know the majority of wild figs you would get around if we're talking about the European species Mm. they are self-fertile and they don't need fertilization from a pollinator because the inside of the fruit is where the male and female flowers actually grow so inside the fruit it pollinates itself and then it becomes ripe around what used to be the flowers. It's just so wild to me that there's male and female in the plant world yeah. That blows my mind. This is my second season of beekeeping. Oh, great. So a lot of my sort of the things I've been putting in my garden have really been for my bees. Yeah, lots of flowers. Uh, and, yeah, yeah, lots of flowers and citrus trees and things because they love that and blueberries because they love blueberry flowers. Yep. So, yeah, I'm very excited to see how the summer goes. I'll definitely be sending you a few pictures. Excellent. Yes, please. <laughs> So now we're going to ask the last question because I'm sure now that people have listened to this, they'll be hungry and keen to get out foraging. <laughs> yep. What would your first couple of tips be for people who would like to start out as beginner foragers? Well, the most important thing to do is to learn. Just learn, learn, learn. Read foraging guidebooks and go to educational sessions with seasoned foragers and join identification groups and forums online, mm. you know, really sort of work on honing your identification skills based on knowledge of people who have been doing it for a long time because you're going to need those observation skills if you want to safely forage and not uh, not pick something that's going to cause you any issues. So, yeah, do your own work reading reputable sources of research and information. But I think the best thing you can possibly do is to go out with an expert forager. And they don't have to be an expert in everything, just go out with them and like you would with a nana, you know, you'd go out and say, Nan, what's this? And she'd tell you, well, I was a child and I did this, that and that. 
and you find yourself learning not just what the species is but how it can be used and Mm. what species to look out for because they're similar but toxic, you know. So, yeah, going out with an expert, whether it's someone you know has been doing it for a long time or whether you pay to go to a workshop, that's probably the really, really most important thing because you know that way that you trust the information and you can ask following questions, which yeah. you can't do with a book. So interesting uh, guides to begin with. I've got a couple of introductory foraging guides um, on my website. One's about mushroom foraging and one's just a general, here's how to be a forager. And, you know, I'm working on a, a different foraging guide, but there's lots of different guides online. And just ask around and find out who the reputable people are. And then, um, yeah, sort of have a read of their stuff and then go out and practice. Get outside, really observe and uh, have a try yeah beautiful love that well that's a good note for us to direct the listeners to your social media and website would you mind telling us what your instagram handle is and your website yeah so um, i'm the urban nana double n's everywhere all through it on instagram and uh, facebook and my website is theurbannana.com yeah there's loads of stuff on there lots of different resources i'm going to put up a list of useful foraging books for Australia and someone, some from the UK as well. So yeah, it'd be lovely to have some people along there and hopefully use that as a springboard to learning a bit more about it. I'm sure once COVID eases, you'll be yeah <laughs> running workshops again, you hopefully. Know, workshops <laughs> that you do? Yes, hopefully so. Wonderful. Well, hopefully I'll come along to one and maybe with Zolta now producer that would be great and get our hands dirty lovely it'd be nice to see you yeah and you thank you so much for your time my pleasure it's been a long time that we've wanted to chat and yeah. i'm glad we got this <laughs> sorted out despite covid it didn't stop us yeah maybe if you're in warrandite at some point come by and i'll show you my garden i would love to see it that'd be awesome thank you for listening to my conversation with anna on the cleopatra's bling podcast for more information on Anna, you can follow her on Instagram at The Urban Nana and be sure to check out the recipes listed on her website. To see how I've been inspired by nature, take a look at our wildflower poetry range, which brims with native Australian flowers in an ethically made celebration of the beauty of our bush. This podcast was produced by Zoltan Fecho and the Cleopatra's Bling team with original music by Cameron Alva. If you liked the show, share it with a friend and leave us a few stars on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're signed up to the newsletter on cleopatrasbling.com to keep up with the newest updates on all things Cleopatra's Bling. Next time on the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. We had like a severe battle in that time. And then I got, I got to 20 and I was like, honestly, I don't have to be like that, but I love him no matter what. And you can have any view that you want to have. I don't have to agree with it, but I know he's a good man. Until next time, stay curious.